Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Now today, I'm going to be starting a series, I don't know how long yet, on uh, some basics. And let me spend a couple of minutes outlining what I have in mind and why I'm going this direction, because some of you, maybe when you hear the word basics, you're like, oh, come on, pastor, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I don't want milk. I want meat. Uh, But uh, this isn't really about teaching you something I think you don't know, but simply reinforcing some things I think you know and more importantly, equipping you to communicate these things to others. Remember, we are not just about living the gospel, we are about preaching the gospel. I've shared this with you before. Every sermon, almost every sermon, I think every sermon, I give an altar call. And when I'm looking out across the congregation, this congregation is small enough right now for me to look around and think, I don't know if there's anybody that needs to hear an altar call, or if they do, I know who you are, and if it's just one of you, I can share it with you individually. Why do I do that? Because number one, I never want to just assume that because I think you're a Christian, you are. Uh, I never know exactly every single person's conversion story. But the other big reason is I want you to hear the altar call, and hear the altar call, and hear the altar call, different versions of it, so that why? So that you can give an altar call in person. So that when somebody asks you, how, what must I know to be saved? What must I do to be saved? You think, well, I've heard Pastor Scott share this 52 times this year. Uh, or 100 times or whatever. And you ought to be able to repeat a version of it. Does that make sense? So it's kind of the same way with some of these basics. I don't think anybody is going to be, have anything, uh, there's, there's nothing that is so deep or uh, mysterious that is going to cause you to disagree. This is some basic Christian stuff. Basic. We're going to look about what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to have faith, to walk in faith? What does it mean to be spirit-filled? Some fundamental aspects of Christianity that I hope you will find are being dressed in a fresh way. Uh, but we are going to be looking at Christianity in general and the message of faith in particular, and we are going to nail down some specifics. Uh, and let me say this. This is also an excellent opportunity for you to ask some questions If you sit through a message or two and think, well, I thought while he was talking about that, he would address this, and I don't, shoot me an email. Maybe I can work it into a future message, or maybe I can answer this in the form of a personal email or a church-wide email. Good time just to be thinking these things over and fleshing some of these things out. If there's something I forgot to cover, let me know. And uh, finally, before I get into this morning's sermon, I want to let you know that next week, Joab Fisher will be in this pulpit. Remember Joab? Uh, He and his family have been ministering in China for years. Always an exciting thing to hear from him and his family. It will just be Joab and one or two of his uh, sons. I don't think Amanda's going to be joining him this time, but I do want you to be here prepared to be blessed and come prepared to be a blessing. Oh yeah, and one more thing, I will be out of the office this week. I'm heading down to Tulsa for Winter Bible Seminar and my 30-year Rama class reunion. I know, I know what you're thinking, Scott. Can't be. But it was like, I was like Doogie Hauser. I went to Rama straight after grade school. So, uh, no, that's that's not true. 30-year class reunion, uh, I'll have internet access on my phone if you need me, but try not to need me. Uh, No. And, but do, hey, seriously, pray for me. I'm your pastor. I pray for you. I really do. Uh, pray for me for times of refreshing. 
uh, refilling and stuff and pray for safe travels. I'm heading down. Here it is. Illinois winter has been a ripoff for the last five years, and now I'm heading down to Tulsa where they're supposed to have 12 inches of snow today. Uh, but I'm not driving all the way down to Tulsa today. I'll get there tomorrow. But anyway, it'll all be good. God's going to cut me a path right through that, just like, uh, like, I did, like he did through the Red Sea. He's going to cut me a path through the snow. So today's message is, who are you? Or who are you? Or who are you? I'll be talking, at least in an introductory way, about what it means to be a Christian. C.S. Lewis is known, among other things, as one of the best, if not the best, apologist, Christian apologist of the 20th century. Uh, many influential apologists have come along who point to C.S. Lewis as the great influence in their life and ministry. And most of them, uh, even if they have risen to great levels of uh, accomplishment, authored books, uh, debated and spoken publicly to greater numbers, uh, they, they would all say that C.S. Lewis was, was a bigger influence because of, of the legacy that he leads. He's probably most famous today for being the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, but his most important work remains a book called Mere Christianity. How many of you have read Mere Christianity, or at least parts of it? A lot of you, a lot of you. Highly recommend it. It's funny how some people over the years have actually been offended by the title Mere Christianity, as if Lewis were denigrating Christianity by referring to Christianity as something that is mere. But as he himself explains in the introduction, what he's doing is I'm not trying to tell you every aspect of Christianity. I'm not comparing or recommending one denomination over another. I'm simply telling you what all Christians hold in common. What is Christianity at its most basic? Uh, he was... Uh, he even says that he submitted his work as he wrote it to an Anglican priest, a Roman Catholic priest, a Methodist, and a Presbyterian to make sure that he wasn't saying something that, that went against the grain for any of them in particular. And he himself, Lewis, was an Anglican. Uh, but this is kind of what it means when we talk about Christian beliefs that all or almost all Christians do agree with or certainly should agree with. This is what we mean by the word ecumenical across denominational lines, not one particular stripe or brand of Christianity. A uh, little story about that. I may have shared this before. I know I've shared it with some of you. I just don't know if I've shared it from the pulpit. Not if I have, bear with me. When I was in Farmer City, I was part of the Blue Ridge Ministerial Alliance, which is, uh, we have a kind of, or at least used to, get together as pastors here in St. Joe, but always sort of a loose fellowship over there it was a little more structured they had a president and a treasurer and we and uh, and several members because it wasn't just in farmer city it was around this the, the area but we had uh, methodists were had a pretty strong uh, influence there so there's several methodist pastors there's a church christ pastor a christian church pastor a baptist there was a catholic priest and um, and a couple others and we would have some great discussions but we were also ultimately responsible for putting together the Anything we did as multi-church, if one church uh, put on a program, we'd be sure to invite the other churches. We did our community Thanksgiving service. We usually did something around Easter. And uh, we were also responsible for planning something for the graduating class of seniors, a baccalaureate service. Well, they had not had a baccalaureate service at the school for a number of years. I'm not sure when that went away, but they started doing a dinner and Victory had been hosting it for a while, and I, I expressed the desire to get the baccalaureate service back into the gymnasium at the school 
so that it was on neutral ground and maybe we'd get more people involved. So we put this service together. It went really well. It was really well attended. But I shared with the group the next week uh, when we met, or the following month, uh, we were kind of, hey, how do you think the baccalaureate service? Oh, I think it went really well. I said, well, I just wanted to share some feedback that there was a parent there who I happened to know from college, from years ago, had not seen her in ages, but she came up and asked me if I had anything to do with putting the service together. She was Jewish, uh, and she said, uh, it was a really nice service, but it seemed like all the speakers were Christians. <laughs> and I said, well, they were. This was a Christian baccalaureate. This was put on by the Christian churches in town. And she said, but you know you can't do that, right? I said, sure we can. No, you have to have something for students of all different religions. I said, I don't. I don't have to do that. Well, the school should. I said, the school didn't put this on. We did. I said, if you want to have a Jewish baccalaureate or if a Muslim wants to have an Islamic a Muslim baccalaureate, they can. You're absolutely right. But I don't have to do it. I'm not going to sponsor that. And she felt that I had really uh, violated some sort of right. So anyway, I shared this with the group. And one of them, one of the other ministers said, well, that's something we need to consider because we do need to respect all faiths. I said, well, I said, I understand about respecting the individuals, but no, I don't have to respect their faith. And, and I'm not going to be part of planning something that, uh, that I said, because, well, and somebody said, well, why not? I said, because that just kind of makes it look like well, it really doesn't matter uh, how you worship. We all worship the same God, and all religions are basically the same. And, uh, and somebody said, well, you know, it does need to be ecumenical. And I said, wait a second, this is ecumenical. When the Catholic, and I probably called that name, when, you, when the Methodist and the Baptist and the Church of Christ and the Word of Faith guy were all sitting around the same table or having a, sharing a service, that's ecumenical because we all claim Christ. What you're talking about is a multi-faith service that if I'm going to be a part of, it's going to look too much like, hey, I embrace all these gifts. They're all just different names for God, and they all just worship the same God in different ways. And one of the pastors said, well, I would agree with that. And I just went, what? I put my hands on my head and, and started. All right, and somebody finally said, let's just table that until next month or so. And so I just very calmly got up and took my boots off and shook them together, shook the dust off, put them back on and walked out. No. It, anyway, I'm not an expert on church history. I like it, I enjoy it, but I'm not an expert. Uh, but it's a pretty safe statement that all denominations began as a division, as a splinter group that broke off because of a point of doctrine. And in certain cases, certain members of those groups that split off uh, have advocated for remaining part of a denomination to try to work for reform and maintain unity. Sometimes it's simply impossible there, uh, because sometimes beliefs and practices just get entrenched over the years, and it takes somebody, an individual, who hears from God or gets a revelation or illumination on something to stand up and point out what we have been doing is wrong. We've got to get things back to the Bible. And... Uh, there's a great story. I don't know how many of you remember the Worldwide Church of God. Uh, Herbert Armstrong founded this, and then his son, Garner Ted. Uh, the Radio Church of God, these were all very, very influential in terms of uh, their scope and their ministry and their reach. But they had some heretical beliefs that I won't go into, but they were, they were typically classified as a cult. Not the occult, but a cult for their beliefs. 
And when Armstrong passed, it wasn't too long after that, and there was a little bit of a tussle over who was going to uh, uh, take over as the head of the ministry. But there were leaders within that organization who got together and humbly examined Scripture and said, what we are believing and what we've been practicing and preaching is not Orthodox Christianity. We need to abandon these beliefs and embrace these beliefs. And somebody suggested, why don't we just, just split up and go to Orthodox churches? And they said, no, I think it would be a testimony to the world that we can be corrected and still maintain our unity and as a church embrace these doctrines. And it was really pretty cool. I don't know if that's ever happened. But guess what? Out of, so, that, so the main body of the Worldwide Church of God shifts over from some heretical cultish doctrines to Orthodox Christianity, and then what happens is splinter group of the original Worldwide Church of God says, no, we are clinging to these beliefs. So even in those cases, there'll be a split. What am I bringing all this stuff up for? The only reason I do that is because right here in Little St. Joseph, Illinois, we have several different denominations, Christian churches. And while certain points of doctrine legitimately prevent us from completely uniting as a local body and worshiping together, they shouldn't be points of division that keep us from fellowshipping. And it is entirely appropriate that we gather when we can for things like the community Thanksgiving service, when we can truly celebrate and acknowledge the things that we do share in common, the bedrock beliefs of Christianity. All right? Now, this is an introductory message, and I'm not going to go too deep. And if I were going to cover it exhaustively, we'd have to go all the way back to Genesis and start all over. So let me make some concrete points for you to remember. One is that while many religions offer paths to moral improvement, none of them, no matter what you heard, say what the Bible says about God, about man, and about man's relationship with God. The Bible is unique. The Bible tells us that God is perfect, that God is holy, that God is complete. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He is uncaused. He always has been. I mean, he's always existed, and he always will be, always will exist. God created mankind in his image. He created them male and female, and he created everything, this whole universe, but man alone bears the image of the Creator. And one of the most potent ways that we reflect that image is in our ability to create. He made us to be creative, and the most specific way we reflect that creative attribute is through procreation. Multiplying, filling the earth. This is important because while every human being born is made in the image of God, all generations after the first man and woman are also born bearing the image of their parents and their grandparents and so on. We all bear the image of God because in essence we are mankind created by God, but we also bear the image of Adam because we were all born to Adam. And this is important because Adam, our first father, sinned. And the Word of God makes it clear when Adam sinned, he didn't just do something, he became something. 
In Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall of mankind. And it's a simple account of Adam and Eve doing the one thing that the Creator told them not to do. There was a tree they weren't supposed to eat of. They listened to the serpent. They ate the fruit of that tree. And this was mankind's first sin. And right after that, we read this. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Isn't this interesting? We read of the account of Adam and Eve taking the fruit, eating it, sinning, and we don't see God showing up in that moment saying, Aha! This wasn't a caught-with-your-hand-in-the-cookie-jar moment. This was later. God's walking in the garden, and everything about the language indicates that this was, just, this was his M.O. I'm going I'm to take on a, a physical form, and I'm going to walk with my man and my woman in the garden, and we're going to fellowship. This is what I created them for, fellowship with me, and we are going to enjoy my creation. Now, did God know what had happened? You better believe he knew what, ha- what had happened. But here he comes anyway, walking in the garden. And what was their response? What were they doing at this time? Were they sinning? Were they eating the fruit? No. But what was their response? They hid from God. Why? Because they sinned? Because they were naked. Never bothered them before. So what was this? Why was their reaction to God's presence different? Because sin had changed them. They were something that they weren't before. They were less than what they were before because they had sinned. Their nature had changed. And in this nature was an absolute fear, of a negative type fear of God. Suddenly they didn't want to be around the one they were created for. There's a crucial... Uh, crucial point to understand i know most of you know this but again let's nail it down adam became a sinner when he sinned you and i sin because we are born sinners do you understand that what adam became at that moment has been inherited in every person who ever lived since then i think i mentioned this last week maybe during the altar call that but that many a latecomer to Christ especially has testified that what they found so compelling about the claims of the Bible when they finally responded to it was not just that they found the Bible to be a repository of truth in general, which it is, but that it spoke, it, that it gave them such an accurate description of themselves. That the Bible gives the most honest and clear-headed description of what man is like, of what I am like and what you are like. Even people who are good, good people. And Brad Dawson, my predecessor at at, uh, Victory in Farmer City, was famous for saying, some people are better by nature than others are by grace. And you know what I'm talking about. You know saved people who are still very, very rough and hard to get along with, and you know some unsaved people who seem like the salt of the earth. But the Bible has something specific to say about both of them. But even good people, they often define their goodness by the things they don't do. We define moral strength, for instance, as the ability or the tendency to resist 
being tempted to do something we know we're not supposed to do. That we, even though we find something attractive because we know it's sinful, we exercise moral strength and we don't do it. But the question the Bible addresses is, why do we find sinful things attractive in the first place? God didn't create us with those predispositions. Those are a result of the sin nature that we inherit from Adam. Why are sinful things sinful? This gets into the broader question of good versus evil. And Lewis hits this right out of the gate in uh, Mere Christianity. Early in the book, this argument of good and evil as a clue to the meaning of the universe. I really, really recommend that, reading that book. And uh, this argument was refined and mastered by the late Ravi Zacharias. And I'll share with you his reasoning here in a second. But let me just get this out of the way. <laughs> And this is tough, uh, because I've quoted Ravi probably more than I've quoted anybody in my years as, uh, in, in ministry. Certainly within the last 10 years, I've quoted him more than anybody. Uh, and many of you might be aware of the unfortunate and devastating news that has come out of that, uh, that ministry. I'm not saying, if you don't know about it, I feel bad telling you about it, but on the other hand, this is somebody that, again, I've quoted a lot, and I would hate for you a year from now to do a web search and all this stuff come up. Well, why didn't Scott tell us this? I'm not trying to throw dirt on the guy's legacy, uh, but this is very, very widespread news already. Some, some very, very disturbing allegations were raised. I was aware of these many months ago and have been following this story, and unfortunately, those allegations have been confirmed by the ministry, I can't say enough good things about how the ministry itself has responded to this and handled it, but it is some really ugly stuff. Uh, I, I, I'm not, well, I don't even recommend reading it because it's, it is disturbing. But let me say this, the damage, uh, number one, let, let me start with this. It doesn't change for one second the truth of his arguments. It doesn't change one bit the, the, the good things that his message was. Unfortunately, what it does, it, it, it robs his message of some of its power. Because now, we say, well, that came from that guy, and you know what he did. This has happened. Ravi's not the first one to fall to this. You know, you hear a great salvation message from a minister, and then uh, a year later, five years later, ten years later, twenty years later, this minister does something horribly wrong and sinful, and all of a sudden, well, can't listen to that guy's stuff anymore. You know? We're, we're, we are flesh and blood. We all, uh, there's always a danger that any of us could fall at any moment. Uh, but it really does. The damage is not just to Ravi's reputation and his family, but to the ministry that currently bears his name. It also reinforces the idea, well, the danger of building a ministry around an individual. You, I don't know how many of you follow that his ministry, or if you just know him, you talk about a deep bench. There's a guy uh, who does a lot of speaking and has for years. This isn't just since Robbie's death. Yeah, I, I highly recommend listening to the testimony and the teachings of Abdu Murray. He's a, he was a highly rated uh, attorney in the United States. He's of uh, Muslim background. Again, came to, came to Christ, I think, in his college years or shortly thereafter. Vince Vitale is another one. Both of these guys are absolutely excellent the question is, how effectively are they going to be able to continue their apologetics ministry under the banner of a ministry that is named after somebody who has fallen so publicly? 
I pray for the ministry and pray for his family. Anyway, I brought him up because Ravi's the one who distilled the argument like this. Why, when somebody says, why is there evil and suffering in the world if God is all good and all powerful? And uh, the answer goes like this. Uh, if there is such a, you're talking about evil, if there's such a thing as evil, would you agree there's such a thing as good? Yes. If there's such a thing as good and evil, you have to agree that there's a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. Yes. If there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver because moral laws aren't in the same category as physical laws like gravity. They don't just happen. So if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no such thing as good. If there's no such thing as good, there's no such thing as evil. So the very question, why is there evil, presupposes the existence of a moral lawgiver. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. And of course, that's just the, the outline of it. You can flesh that argument out. But there is a moral law. And Lewis wrote what he, that he observes this when he, when, again, this is in the early chapters of his book. He says, so I come to this conclusion. There is a way I ought to behave. And my second conclusion, my second observation is, I am not behaving that way. Why? It's not just a matter of knowing what's right and wrong. Where is my will to do right? Where does that come from? There are two forces at work. The sin nature and the law of God. When I was in high school, we had a class. I don't even remember the real name of this class. We called it the isms class. Do you remember what that class was actually called? You took it, didn't you? Huh? No, because it wasn't just religion. We talked about socioeconomic. We, we, we talked about communism versus capitalism. Do you remember, Todd? Uh, 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 communism versus capitalism and different government types. And then there was a, a, a unit on different religions. And uh, when we got to the, uh, uh, the day we were talking about Christianity, the teacher was up there and he basically say, said something like, Christians believe that there is a heaven for good people and a hell for bad people and that Jesus taught us how to behave so we can go to heaven. And at that moment, I looked over at another student and I knew she was a Christian. She already had her hand up and she said, that's not what Christianity is. And I very cleverly added, yeah, that's not what Christianity is. So we kind of went round and round with this teacher and it got to the point where he was kind of rolling his eyes and calling us both reverend by the time the class was over. And he wasn't being really, he wasn't dismissing us. He's a really nice guy, good teacher. I just think he felt a little bit ill-equipped at that point to, to define Christianity for us. And I'm not telling you that story uh, to pat myself on the back for my bold Christian witness or anything like that. I'm just saying it's super important to be able to communicate what Christianity is to people who don't understand it. You think you're going to go to heaven acting like that? Well, how I act is something that's important, but let's talk about why I think I'm going to heaven. Why does the Bible say that I can have a hope of heaven even though I acted like that? I remember a bumper sticker that was very popular back in the day that said, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now, I also remember reading another book that I've recommended several times is a book called No Compromise. It's the life story of Keith Green. And he... Uh, in this uh, melody, his wife writes that Keith hated seeing that bumper sticker. He says, that's nothing but an excuse to live your life in a way that's not holy. But Keith, Keith Green had a real uh, he had a streak there that could be a little bit uh, borderline judgmental, okay? 
I understand where, where he was coming from, but that sticker is, is stating a pretty biblical truth. What makes me a Christian is not how I personally live my life, but the very fact that I have been forgiven. I do not hold myself up as the moral authority. I recognize that my moral authority is God himself, and I confess that I have fallen short of that, which is why I need a Savior. We are not here to proclaim our own moral superiority. We are here to proclaim the mercy and goodness of God, the good news of the gospel, which, is at, its, which at its core recognizes man's inability to live according to God's moral law. This is what the cross is for. Say it again and again and again. If we were capable of meeting God's moral demands, the cross would not have been necessary. But sin demands judgment. Sin cries out for judgment. We see that clear back in Genesis. And judgment was poured out on mankind's sin. But where it was poured out was at the cross. Jesus took that sin in himself, and the wrath of, uh, that, that sin invites was poured out on him. And if we are in Christ, if we have looked to the cross for salvation, that wrath is not what we are pointed to. There is still wrath being stored up for the day that was, is going to be poured out on the earth for those who have not embraced the cross, those who have not accepted Christ's sacrifice for their sin. But you and I, you, we, we are, we're covered. We're redeemed. We've been cleansed by that work. I'll come back around to that as we get closer to communion. There are two huge truths that you must remember if you remember nothing else from today. And so, yes, I'm getting a little closer to wrapping up here. One is this, that becoming a Christian is something that happens at a specific point in time. A message has been received, it's been understood, and it's been acted upon in the form of a decision that you make. You have either decided to reject it or you've decided to accept it. Uh, and by the way, uh, C.S. Lewis, in his own conversion story, which he, he talks a little, he doesn't talk much about his own conversion in mere Christianity, but he does, and I think the book is Surprised by Joy. Uh, but because he doesn't offer the sinner's prayer in mere Christianity, and because he doesn't recount answering an altar call or praying the specific sinner's prayer, there are some people who've been bothered by that, who have even questioned, did he even get saved? What he shares, I think, is he was actually, I think he was riding in a sidecar of a motorcycle. He was on a ride of some kind. And he said, all I can tell you, he'd, he'd been thinking about it, he'd been reading, he'd been praying, he'd been studying. He said, all I can tell you is when I began that ride, I was an atheist, and when we got to the end of that ride, I was a believer. What did Paul write? If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Did C.S. Lewis confess Christ? He absolutely did. Did it more publicly and more successfully than anybody of his age. Did he believe in his heart God raised him from the dead? Boy, for somebody, if he didn't, he sure defended the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ well. So he certainly did. All I'm saying is, um, Let's don't, let's don't, uh, it's kind of two-sided. Let's don't, we don't need to be overly legalistic about the particular words one uses when they commit their lives to Christ. I've shared my testimony with you before. I grew up in church, grew up hearing the gospel. There were many conversations, many thoughts, many agonizing nights thinking about this stuff, but when it came to the moment of committing my life to Christ, all I said was something like, please come into my heart and save me. 
I didn't quote a scripture. There was nothing in particular. But you know what? I 100% believe to this day that God knew exactly what I meant, what I needed. I believe he answered my prayer and saved me at that moment. Have I come into a fuller understanding of what it means to commit my life to Christ since then? Absolutely. Did God save me at that, on that date at that time? Yes, he did. Uh, more importantly, though, we need to understand that our salvation, our becoming Christians, believers, born again, is something that happens at a moment. It is not something we gradually grow into. I understand getting to the point of decision is a process. All I mean is nobody ever died who was halfway Christian. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost is recounted. And this after the Holy Spirit is poured out, they, they are uh, praising the Lord in other tongues. And a crowd gathers, and Peter stands up and speaks to them. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says this, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. It didn't say 3,000 people heard enough of, uh, of, from Peter's message that they decide to explore it further. And little by little, uh, they grew into mature believers. It simply says, that day they believed, they were baptized, and their souls were added to them. This is something that happened on that day. Now, I appreciate <laughs> there was a, a group uh, back in the 60s and 70s uh, and, and the, I don't know if there, there, there certainly is today a group called Jesus People USA, but the Jesus People grew out of some, uh, uh, a less organized uh, movement among young people, mostly in the countercultural revolution, the hippies. They came out of this very hedonistic lifestyle, but certain, certain men and women were particularly anointed to minister the gospel to them, and when they embraced the Christian message, they really embraced the Christian message. Now, they raised a lot of eyebrows among the more uh, conservative and traditional ministers, but even those who were looking to criticize them, many of them, even some, I, I could name one ultra-legalistic guy uh, who loved to write critical things about other ministers. And he says, I've, I've followed them, I've spent time in their presence, and I have to tell you, these are legitimate Orthodox believers. They are serious but they, there were certain groups of them, can't paint with too broad a brush, but certain very dedicated groups of these hippie Christians, these Jesus people, would invite people into their studies, and people would, I want to be part of this. And what they would do is they'd put them through this rigorous training and discipleship program. Make a me you've got to memorize these 300 scriptures. You've got to commit to go out and sharing this stuff. Anyway, all that to say, they would withhold baptism for up to a year. And, and there were groups that did that in, uh, shortly after the early church. They took this stuff so seriously. We don't want any of these fly-by-night conversions. If you're not going to be with it to stay, then we don't want you to confess Christ. Because they didn't want any false conversions. Now, again, I appreciate the seriousness that they're taking it with, but I don't think that's a biblical approach. You know, 3,000 people that day were added to the number of, of the disciples. They didn't say, now hold your horses, you can't be baptized yet. You've got you to gotta get to where we are first. All right? I think the best way to do this is uh, <laughs> to pray with anybody who expresses a desire to be born again. 
And uh, then, of course, we absolutely do our best to walk through life with them and disciple them, but ultimately, let's just trust God to keep them, okay? I, I, I get it. You, know, it it's, you can get a little bit jaded when you say, so-and-so ministered uh, last year and over a million souls came to Christ. And you think, well, what, what are the... How's that shake out a year from now? Okay, so you had a, a, over a million people answer your altar calls. How many of them got hooked up with a local church? How many of them are walking with Christ today? How many of them laid aside the things they believed before? That's particularly important in some eastern countries where they just sort of add Christianity onto what they already believe. Uh, and so in this, for the sake of accuracy and accounting, maybe it's, it's a good thing to make sure, all right, this is what you, everything you have to believe before we're going to call you a Christian. But if your goal isn't just a matter of counting people and numerical accuracy, let's just get as many people to pray with us as we can and trust God to keep them. Amen? Okay, we can argue later, I guess. If somebody comes up to me and says, Scott, I've heard enough of the gospel and I want to become a Christian, I want to get saved right now, I'm going to pray with them right now and then we'll teach. And if they want to back out of it later, they can. But I'm not going to say, I'm not going to pray with you until you know this, 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 and this. God's moving on somebody right now. I want to pray with them right now. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Now, uh, point number two uh, is that uh, becoming a Christian, point number one, Becoming a Christian happens in a moment, something we decide to do. Uh, Point number two is this, and it's even more important. When you become a Christian, you are changed. This is not something you just believe. You take on a new nature. You don't just embrace a certain set of teachings or even a lifestyle. Jesus himself is the one who said you must be born again. You use a term like new birth. That's saying something. It's precisely what it is. Because before we are saved, we are dead in our sins. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Who are you? Are you a sinner? No, no. Are you a sinner saved by grace? You are somebody new. The person you were died with Christ. And a new you has been born. Raised from the dead, actually. Talking with an old friend from Canaan land the other day, uh, I I called him because he was actually a classmate of mine, and I had reached out to him on Facebook to see if he was going to be at uh, Winter Bible Seminar, and he said, "Uh, give me a call. So he shot me his number. I called him. We talked for an hour and a half, and we just did all this catching up. I haven't seen him since my wedding. And uh, he was uh, telling me what he's doing, and he's working in his home church uh, and uh, doing a number of things, leading some prayer teams and stuff. But one of the things he does is he ministers in this recovery ministry they have. You know, draws on his Canaan land experience and is teaching and discipling some of these uh, people. And uh, one of the things that he has butt heads with people about is several people who've come to this church, joined this recovery program, and they have already been through something like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous or, or Narcotics Anonymous or something like that, and, or some similar 12-step program. And they want to argue because what they want to do, what, 
and anybody who's been in one of these one of these meetings, many, several of you may have, uh, but even if you haven't, I'm sure you know one of the one of the fundamental things they do uh, at Alcoholics Anonymous is say is do what the beginning of the meeting. My name is Joe. My name is Steve. My name is Scott, and I'm an alcoholic, or I'm an addict, or whatever. This is it. This is the first thing. We've got to embrace this. This isn't something I do. This is something I am. Now, it's a very honest approach for these people who don't understand the transforming power, of, you know, that, that God can absolutely transform our nature. And it has worked. But overall, do you know what the recidivism rate is for programs like that? About 85%. That was approximately Canaan Land's success rate. That 85%, they stopped tracking it as closely after a while, but at one time they had done follow-ups for several years of these guys, and of the people who graduated the program, 85 plus percent did not return to the thing that got them to Canaan Land in the first place. Why? Because we taught them just the opposite. You are not who you were when you got here. You didn't come here just to get clean from crack or heroin or whatever it was. It was mostly crack when I was there. Now I think it's probably mostly meth, something else. You didn't come here just to get clean from this, to get this out of your system. You came here to be born again. You came here to be recreated. You came here for a new identity. You didn't come here just to do something or undo something. You came here to become something. This is what happens when we come to Christ. We don't just go to him for a better life. We go to him and we get a new life. Oh, man, this gets exciting. A born-again believer who is in Christ, that means the person I was when I came to Christ no longer lives. It is Christ who lives in me. And then here's the question. If I really have a new nature, tell me this. If you've ever asked this question you came to christ and i think i'm describing most of you you came to understand the new birth and you recognize god made me somebody new when i got saved believe that much right do you ever ask yourself this if i have a new nature if the old me died with christ then why is it still even occasionally a struggle why does sin any sin still trip me up why does it seem like the sin nature is still there if I have been made a partaker of the divine nature of God, which is what we read in Scripture? Has anybody ever wondered that besides me? If when I got saved, I got a new me, a, the Spirit of Christ is in me, then why is any sin still attractive to me? I see a few heads kind of nodding and a few hands up. How many of you can say, that from the day I got saved, I've never been tempted to sin. Okay, then you're in the first category, all right? So everybody should be, yeah, you should wonder that. If, if, if this was a real, if I was born again, I'm somebody new, then why do I still struggle with sin? And I'm going to answer you in two weeks. I really will, but uh, next week, Joab's going to be here, and I'll get, I'll get back in the saddle. I need to finish this message today. Because meanwhile, who are you? Are you a sinful man? Simply a man, saved by grace, a person, man or a woman. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, this is one of my favorite little passages in Scripture. For you are still carnal, 
For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? I saw a t-shirt years ago that I just loved, and it simply said this, I am not a mere man. I am not a mere man. There's so much excitement and mystery wrapped up in a statement like that. But that's the bottom line. You get a picture of yourself that's in line with the finished work of Christ and with the revealed will of God and his promises, and you will stop falling for the lie that you are merely human. You'll stop falling for the lie that you are incapable of overcoming. I am not minimizing your struggle, whatever your particular struggle is. But if God is for you, Rainy, who can be against you? I only said that because you weren't looking at me. I needed you to look at me. Anybody else not looking at me that I can call out, huh? Oh, man. Hear me? I'm not saying your struggle isn't real. I'm not saying your struggle isn't hard. I'm saying, is it bigger than God? And is he really for you? How can you possibly lose? You lose when you don't believe he's for you. You lose when fear keeps you from moving forward because you forgot or didn't know or don't believe that God's going with you when you do go forward. We don't move forward because we think we're moving alone. God is with you. Oh, man. Start believing. There's an old song, one of the very first hits by Steve Camp. Y'all look it up, man. It's a cool, jazzy, kind of late 70s song called Start Believing by Steve Camp. Listen, listen to it. Man, I should have had it queued up and play, man. It'll, it'll charge you. But start believing. Who are you? You are a blood-bought child of the Most High God. You are a joint heir with Christ himself. These are all, this is all straight from Scripture. Not making this up. Blood-bought child of the Most High God, you are a joint heir with Christ. You are a co-laborer with Christ. You are an overcomer. You are a victor. And by God, you are a saint. Don't be afraid to act like one, to speak like one. You have nothing to earn. It's all been given to you. Simply celebrate what he has purchased for you. Praise and worship team, come up here. And that's an important point. God offers us all of this, this new life, this victory, the he everything that comes in that salvation package. And it's not just heaven after we die. It's physical healing. It's abundant provision. It's restored relationships with him and with one another. He offers it to us, and what does it cost us? Nothing. But it cost him something. That's what we can't afford to forget. The cross reminds us that this gift that God is giving us for free had to be purchased by him. We're going to move uh, in just a moment. We're going to be taking communion. Before we do that, I want to ask. You've heard enough of the gospel this morning to respond to it if you haven't already. I hope you've heard enough to understand that God isn't expecting you to be perfect, manifestly perfect starting today. He simply wants you 
to accept his payment for your sin, to acknowledge his claim over your life as Lord, and to trust him to make you into his image. He's not saying, if you're going to take salvation from me, then I expect you to start acting more and more perfect. He says, no, if you're going to accept salvation from me, I'm going to work something in you that is going to cause you to be like Christ. But it's him doing the work. Many people have knocked themselves out trying to do for God what God was trying to do through them. Trust him. He loves you. His plan for you is a good plan. So my question is, does anybody need to make that decision today? Pastor Scott, I don't know what I'm capable of, but I know I'm not capable of saving myself and I need saved. I accept what Jesus did for me starting now. Whatever other failure that I might represent, I believe. I'm a believer and I accept that payment for my sin. Jesus Come into my life, be my Lord, change me and save me. Anybody want to all just by a show of hands say, I need to make that decision now? Praise the Lord. Then, as we move on to celebrate the Lord's table, thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.